Good morning, everybody. Glad to be here with you and would encourage you to open your Bible to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2 as we continue walking through this book together. Uh, It's good to be back with you, but I have to say I really enjoyed last week as well, and I hope that it was a blessing to your heart uh, as Pastor Vince from Journey came and opened the word with you. Um, he, he was all excited because he knows I'm a reader. And so he texted me, he's like, Hey, I'm going to use Sylvester the donkey as an example on Sunday. And I was one of those people that had that horrible childhood he talked about because I never had heard of the book. And so, uh, he beat me there. And then, uh, I forgot as I was preaching over there, I forgot that their service started a half hour earlier than our service starts. And so they got a much longer sermon than you guys did. So I hope you enjoyed last week because this week I'm back uh, and for good or for ill. Uh, But I'm grateful for the partnership that we have in this community between the pastors, between the churches. Uh, Yesterday we were able to go group of us over to Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Uh, They were doing a clothing outreach. Uh, We got to be a part of that. And it's just exciting to me when we start to see God's work spreading beyond the bounds of our building, right? When, When we begin to see that God's work that he's doing, that we get to be a part of, is so much bigger than any one church, right? And as a church, we collectively said, hey, this matters to us. That's why we have a pastor of community engagement and students, right? So he does students here, but he's also this role of community engagement. And that's where he's at this morning. Uh, He is over at Henderson Memorial, Kamar, our pastor of students and community engagement. He's over at Henderson Memorial, uh, opening the word with them this morning. And Lord willing, We'll continue to see ourselves as a church that sends, not just that keeps, as a church that uh, has people going everywhere, whether that's Hopkinsville or Utah or Poland or Brazil or countries that we don't even know the names of yet, we want to be a church that is about sending. We want to be a church that is building up uh, a, a body that is a blessing to God and a blessing to those around us. Last week when Vince was here, he was looking at that passage there in chapter two where it talks about Christ being the living stone, Christ being the cornerstone. And then he says to us, he says, you are living stones being built off of that chief cornerstone into a spiritual house. And that whole idea, I think, is is captivating to us. Right? It should be something that just grabs our attention and gets us to focus in and be like, wait a second, this is not just you know, me and my homeboy Jesus hanging out. What he's doing is he's not just working in me, he's working in all of these people around me. And he's bringing us together and he's doing something. He's doing something in that work. And brothers and sisters, that is vital for us to keep that focus, keep that in mind. But here's the thing that happens. If we get locked in on the us, we might forget about the them. If we get so focused on what's going on here, we might forget about what we're supposed to be doing out there. If we get so focused on what God is doing in me, we might miss what he's doing in you. And this is something that is vital for us to understand as we're walking through this book, as we're thinking about Peter, as he's addressing these sojourners and exiles, us. We need to bear in mind that this is, this is something that is both personal, but also corporate. 
It's something that is local and yet global. It is something that is for now and yet it is timeless as God is building his kingdom. Now, that extended setup is for this purpose. Because when we come to this text, there's going to be a temptation for us to separate it from what's gone before. There's a temptation for us to think, oh, Peter is now going to just give us some rules to live by. That's not what Peter's trying to do. If you want to summarize the stuff that we've looked at so far in 1 Peter, you could say the summary is, this is who you are because of what Christ has done, and this is how you ought to live as a result. And if you want to summarize the section we're looking at this morning here in chapter 2, 11 to 25, it's going to be, this is who Jesus is, and this is what he's done for you, and this is how you ought to live as a result. And spoiler alert, guess what the next three chapters are going to be like? This is who Jesus is, and this is what he's done for you, and this is how you ought to live as a result. And that is crucial for us to keep that going. We don't want to lose sight of Christ. We don't want to lose sight of the body. We don't want to lose sight of our personal responsibility. We want to keep all of those things together. All right, so if you look with me here at chapter 2, and we're going to be looking in verse 11, and I'm going to read this passage, and I'll ask you to follow along in your copy of God's Word. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good." Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For, if it, bring, for it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We look at this passage and, and, and we kind of walk through, there's, there's a ton of meat in here. There's a lot that we could chew on this morning. But what I want us to focus on this morning is what Peter is saying to us, what is practical for us as we walk this road of righteousness, right? We, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, how in the Western church, we've oftentimes misunderstood salvation. We think about it in terms of a sinner's prayer, the initial response of faith. The, the spirit comes, brings life where there was death before, 
And then it's meant to carry on biblically. It's meant to go on into sanctification, this process of becoming more holy, more like God. It's meant to then result in this moment of glorification when, whether it's through our death and reunion with Christ in heaven or through his return and the establishment of the new heavens and new earth and the resurrection of the dead, whatever the point is, we have this moment where we see Christ and when we see him, we are finally fully like him and his kingdom is established. We are glorified. And our temptation to see just the front end of that leads us to approach a text like this and to misunderstand, I think, what is going on. Now, I had an illustration prepared here that I was going to use for my first point, but I had a problem because the illustration required a $100 bill, and I didn't have a $100 bill. So what I want you to do is imagine that I have a $100 bill right here, all right? Now, a $100 bill does not go nearly as far as it used to. It's not nearly as important of a status symbol. My grandfather used to say, uh, and my grandfather did not know Jesus, my grandfather was a great uh, joker, he was, he was hilarious, but he said, if you don't have a $100 bill in your pocket, you're not a man. So I'm not a man this morning, but you can see this pretend $100 bill that I've got. Now, if I have a $100 bill, and it is crisp and fresh from the bank, from the mint, it, it is perfect, right? How much is it worth? All right. If I take that same $100 bill and I crumple it up and I throw it in some muddy water and I run it in my jeans through the washer, how much is it worth? As long as it's still together, right? As long as it holds together, it's worth $100. How saved are you? Huh. The the worth of the human soul is not changed based on the condition of the human soul. Like a $100 bill, if I gave you a fresh, crisp $100 bill, you'd be excited. If I gave you a dirty, old, wadded up $100 bill, guess what? You'd still be excited. You might go wash your hands afterwards, but you'd still be excited. And yet, we assume that there is this difference in value between different kinds of souls, We assume that that there is this merit-based system when it comes to the grace of God. And for the person whose soul is, you know, untarnished, so to speak, fresh from the mint, well, God must love them more. And for the person who's been through some stuff, who's sinned, who's fallen short of the glory of God, well, that soul must be worth a little less in God's eyes. That's not the case, friends. Some of you are sitting here this morning, and for lack of a better way of putting it, you're pretty good people. You've not done a whole ton of stuff wrong, right? Well, yeah, there was that time in third grade when you called Joey fat, but other than that, like, you're pretty, you're pretty good guy, pretty good gal. And some of you are like, man, I've got a rap sheet, and that's just the stuff they caught me for. There's all kinds of stuff. Let me tell you, it does not matter this morning. Peter is talking to both of you. He is talking to those of you who grew up in church and whose worst offense, you know, was putting gum on the Sunday school teacher's seat. And he's talking to those of us who've done time. He's talking to those of us who've battled addictions. They're still battling addictions. It doesn't matter. This word is for all of us, and he's going to tell us this is the thing. Your soul your soul matters. And he's, he talks about the soul over and over. Verse 11, 
abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. And then he finishes, verse 25, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. And that soul idea is simply the idea of the self, the person. And he wants us to understand that who you are matters to God. But here's the thing. He does want to encourage us to protect our souls. He wants us to protect our souls. If we look at there in verse 11, he says that what's happening is that there are these things that are waging war against your soul. Right now, there's a war going on in Ukraine, and we seem to have forgotten about it in large part, but it's still happening. And the destruction that comes from a war is hard to wrap at least my head around. Some of you are veterans. Some of you have seen the devastation of war right? You've, you've seen this the firsthand. I haven't, but I can only imagine the decades, regardless of the outcome there in Ukraine, I can only imagine the decades of work that's going to be required to overcome this devastation. There comes a point of almost diminishing returns. At what point do you say, you know, this, this war is no longer worth fighting? The thing we're fighting for has been so destroyed by the fight that its value is gone. You don't. Right? For, for those patriots there who are fighting for their homeland, their, their concern is not with the condition, it's with the reality. This is home. It's worth fighting for. For us, our soul's condition is not a reason to fight or not fight. There are some of you who, because of mistakes that you've made, you made a mistake on Friday night. And so Saturday, how much easier was it to be like, well, I already screwed up. I'll just start fresh on Sunday. No, your soul is valuable regardless of what it's been through. But there are these desires that wage war against it. So protect it. Too often we approach our Christian life throwing up our hands. We, we throw up our hands and be like, well, this is just too much for me to combat. This is too much for me to overcome. I'm not even going to try anymore. That's not our response, church. Your soul is the most valuable thing you possess. You think about that loan on your house and you think, that's ah, worth quite a bit. You think about that car sitting out in the parking lot that you wash every week and you're like, that, that's, that's a treasure right there. But it doesn't matter. Your soul's the most valuable thing you have. Regardless of what it's been through, its value is unchanged. It's the soul that Jesus died for. Jesus said, what does it profit if someone were to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? All the gold in Fort Knox, all of the precious metals coming out of those mines in China, all of the diamonds coming out of Africa, every single cent that the world has ever minted or seen, Jesus says if you get all of that, it still is not worth the same as one single soul, yours. What do you do with stuff that's valuable? You protect it. That car that's sitting out there that you wash every week, right? You're tempted when you pull in on Sunday morning to park a little farther out, right? Hoping that somebody will leave you some space, not ding it up, right? That house that you take pride in, that lawn that you're taking care of, right? You'll invest money in it. You'll put a security system in it. 
right? You'll put a fence up around it. You want this to be protected. This is valuable stuff. And yet, church, how often do we just treat our souls like garbage to be thrown out? We throw up our hands and be like, well, I can't, I can't do it. I can't guard it. No, Peter says, this is, this is what I'm telling you. You need to abstain from sinful what? Not sinful actions. Sinful actions destroy your soul, but he's not even going there. He says sinful desires that wage war against the soul. The problem with us is not always what we're doing. It's oftentimes what we're feeling. It's, it, the problem is not what we're allowing our bodies to do. It's where we're allowing our minds to go. This is what Jesus talks about. Right? You've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I say to you, if anyone is angry with his brother, he's murdered him in his heart. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at someone the wrong way, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus recognizes something that Peter recognizes, or Peter got it from Jesus, whichever way it goes here. He says it is these sinful desires, these thoughts, these impressions, these inward heart attitudes, these are the things that are destroying or seeking to destroy your soul. And yet we just kind of coast along. We'll wash the truck, we'll put the fence up around the house, but our soul, we'll just turn it loose. We watch everything that society is putting in front of us and saying, this is good art. No, it's not. It's thinly disguised pornography that they're pretending is art. Oh, this is, this is, this is what you need to make you happy. Buy this. No. Consumerism is soul-destroying. The relentless pursuit of more and more and better and better is going to kill your soul, Christian. Fight it. Peter doesn't even say fight it. He says just don't do it. Abstain from it. Now that's a word, if ever there was one, that Americans hate to hear. We want it all and we want it right now. And Peter says, no, no, no. Abstain from sinful desires. Don't want these things, Christian, that are destroying your soul. Don't want these things. Protect your soul, Christ follower, because it's the most valuable thing you possess. Protect your soul and do so not just in what you do, but in what you think. This is hard for us to kind of grab a hold of. The music that we listen to, uh, if you were to ask my kids about what kind of music they listen to, you would be disappointed in your, pa- or what kind of music I listen to, they, you would be disappointed in your pastor. Because I listen to a wide variety of music. I do that with some intentionality. I do that because I want to understand. I'm, I'm not real active on social media, you know that. Uh, I can kind of tend to crawl under a rock somewhere. I, I just can't watch a lot of the stuff that's on TV or on the streaming services now. And so my one point of engagement sometimes with popular culture is music. And so I listen to all of it. But I can tell you that when I stop listening with intentionality to understand, and when I start listening mindlessly, just consuming, it has an impact on my soul. When I listen to songs that 
celebrate addiction, that celebrate brokenness in the world, that has a corrosive effect on my soul. This is the point where we have to be mindful to be in the world but not of the world. And when we sense those desires rising up in us that are contrary to Christ, Peter says, this is what you do, don't. Don't keep feeding those desires. Why does that matter? It matters because of our souls. Protect your soul, Peter says. The next thing that I see him saying is is that we ought to not just protect our souls, we ought to protect our witness. We have to protect our witness. Now, this is one of those Christianese words, right? We, it's got, it's got rev- relevance in the, in the broader culture, right? Uh, you know, the defense rests, your witness, right? We, we think about a witness in court who's given testimony, right? That's a point, but, but it has a special connotation when we get into church, right? And we talk about being witnesses for Christ. We, we, we talk about protecting our witness, and, and it'd be easy to just not define that very churchy term, but I want to do that for you real quick. Your witness, church, your witness are the words you speak, the actions you perform, and the motivation behind both of them. Your witness is composed of those three elements, the words you speak, the actions you perform, and the motivation for both of them. Now, why does that matter? Well, you've, you've heard it said, and, and I've made fun of it before, so don't say it if you used to say it, right? Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Well, it's news. <laughs> it literally requires words. You can't tell good news without having some words to go along with it. There are some really fantastic atheists There are some exceedingly moral Hindus and they have all the right actions. But if our witness doesn't have words, it's not actually a witness. But if our witness is just words, then it's falling well short of what Christ intended. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, right? You say, Lord, Lord, Did we not do many things in your name? Did we not do miracles? And he says, as often as you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. Jesus seems to care greatly about our right actions. So we marry our right actions and our right words, and that's still not a right witness because there's also this issue of motivation. What is it, why is it that we're doing what we're doing? Are we saying the right words and doing the right things so that other people might look at us and be like, whoa, super Christian? Or are we doing them because we want people to say, wow, if Jesus could do that in them, he could do it for me. It's a focus issue. It's a a motivation issue. And we see this in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. So now there's been a shift for Peter from saying your soul inward, you protect your soul to now saying, wait, there's other people involved here. There are other people who are going to be seeing you conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. So the right words are what? The gospel. And if you can't articulate the gospel, 
you need to fix that. Now, everybody says, well, I, can't, I, can't, I can't share the gospel because I don't know how to say it. Well, how did you know how to receive it? If you can't say the gospel, how did you understand it to submit to it in the first place? The gospel is pretty simple. God made man. Man fell. We all sin. Jesus came to die. The penalty for death or penalty for sin is death. He came to die for us. He rose again, and all who trust in him, all who believe in his name, and that God has raised him from the dead can be saved. There's the gospel. It's got to be the words. And it has to be a word that separates the Christ follower from the other. Peter says to you sojourners and exiles. And then he says, walk, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, right? There's this distinction. It's very easy to talk about God. It's very easy to get somebody to agree that they love God. It's much more divisive to talk about Jesus because the Muslim loves God and the Hindu loves God. A lot of people love God. The, the only exception is the atheist who says, there is no God and I hate him, right? That's the, that's the thing. We as human beings, we all love the idea of God. But when you start talking about Jesus, you start drawing lines. So the right words are words that point to Christ, that point to Jesus, that point to his death on the cross, that point to his resurrection from the grave, that challenge us to make a response to him, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works. There's this right action. Our witness has to have an active component. If I go to somebody and I say the gospel is this, God loves you, sent his son to die for you and forgive you of your sins and make you like him. If I go to them and say that while I am breaking at least three different laws, in their presence, do you think they're going to trust too much in the transformative power of that God? If I am saying to somebody, Jesus Christ can change your life and I evince no transformation whatsoever, how convincing are my words? They're not. So protecting our witness means not just protecting our understanding of the gospel and our ability to articulate it, it means protecting the actions that we do in public, in private, the actions that we do that would give honor or take honor from Jesus. As Christ followers, we are free, Paul says. You are set free. You are no longer subject to the law. And we're like, well, that sounds great. So I can just do whatever I want. No, actually, you can't. Because now you are bound, your actions are bound by a different law, the law of Christ. That law means you live for others, not for yourself. So, right, actions. Then he goes on, he says, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they'll observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. That's that right motivation. That's that right heart. Our witness is our words, Jesus. Our actions, also Jesus. And the right motivation, Jesus gets the glory. We don't speak the words we speak. We don't do the things we do so that others would look at us and be like, wow, there's something special. We do it so that they would look at Jesus and say, wow, he's something special. And when he returns, 
The unbeliever even, Peter says, is going to recognize, wow, he's something special. Wow, now I understand what they were all so concerned about. They weren't worried about themselves. They were willing to be slandered. They were willing to be uh, mistreated, all because Jesus was worth it. Oh, I get it now. That right motivation is what changes our witness. When, when we look at those three things, the right words, the right actions, and the right motivation, uh, it's sometimes helpful if we can think through what does it look like if we miss one of those, right? And just some, some characters, uh, if you want, from, from life. Uh, when I was younger, we had gone into D&B Supply, which y'all don't know what D&B Supply, I think Tractor Supply Company, all right? I'd gone in there with a family member who I will leave nameless to protect his uh, reputation amongst you. Uh, this family member, this is in the days, and kids, you're going to have trouble imagining this. This is in the days when checks were still written, all right? And we were ordering fencing materials or feed or something. I don't remember what we were getting. And so he, he goes up to the counter, and uh, he's going to write out a check. The cashier gives him the total, and he's sitting there, and he's looking at his checkbook, and he's looking at his empty hand, and he's looking at the total on the screen, and he's looking at his checkbook. He's looking at his empty hand. I'm like, what is going on? And it seemed to go on for a long time. And finally he says, he's like, ah, can you give me a, and he's doing this. Can you give me, can you, ah, can you give me a, give me one of those writing sticks. <laughs> right action, want to write a check, want to pay my bill. Right motivation, I'm not just walking out with this stuff. Wrong word. These writing sticks, as they are forever known in the Boone household, are known as pins to the more educated populace. Uh, Yogi Berra is a good example of the wrong words, right? It ain't over till it's over. Well, yeah, that's kind of what over means, right? When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Well, yeah, that's kind of how, anyways, you guys get what I'm saying. Like the wrong words, the wrong words, even with the right actions, right motivations, they can affect things. Right? How many of y'all like Amelia Bedelia? All right, so this is my moment here. Amelia Bedelia, Ray, go ahead, raise your hand, raise your hand. Amelia Bedelia, if you don't know Amelia Bedelia, uh, it's kind of like Sylvester the Donkey from Vincent last week. If you don't know it, that's okay, but I love the Amelia Bedelia books. Amelia Bedelia was a maid in a house for some rich people, and she always took things the most literally, literal way possible. So she would have the right words. The, the owner of the house would tell her to draw the curtains, which means just, you know, shut the curtains. Well, she would proudly come back with her drawing of the curtains, right? Uh, and, and that stuff, on and on. She's, she's got the right words. She's got the right heart, but she's not doing the thing that they actually intended to be done, right? And, and that kind of stuff just, just bothers me. The one that really bothers me, though, is, is Eddie Haskell, right? Some of you are too young to get that reference. Um, I'd like to say I'm too young to get that reference, but I caught the reruns anyways. Uh, but Eddie Haskell, a character on Leave it to Beaver, right? In front of the adults, what a lovely dress you have, Mrs. Cleaver. Behind their backs, what? Smart aleck punk kid, right? That's, that's, what, that's what it looks like when you have the right words, right actions, but then you got the wrong motivation. He was just trying to impress everybody. Friends, we don't want that to be us. Peter says, protect your witness. He, he tells us to conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, right? That they might see your good works and give the glory to God, which is the right motivation. We also finally want to protect our focus. 
protect your focus. It's not working for me. If you can advance that slide, that'd be great. Protect your focus. Now, you guys have been looking at this and you're like, wow, we've spent this long on verses one and two. Now we understand how Journey Church felt last week. (laughs) This last little bit, 13 to 25, it's all of a piece. And I'm going to keep it together as a piece because I think that's what Peter does. He, he says to us, look, your soul matters. Abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against them. He says to us, your witness matters. Make sure that you conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. And then he shifts our, to our focus. He, he, he helps us to see things differently. And this is, this is probably the most important point because of our temptation to lose focus. Now, I'm not going to read this whole text again, but I want you to remember he uses words that are very mm, not palatable, not friendly. Submit. How many of you guys like the word submit? I mean, naturally, right? Like, you know the church answer. Oh, yeah, yeah, I like that. No, you don't. We can be honest, even on Sunday morning, believe it or not, we don't like that word submit. Every single one of us is a tyrant in training. We do not want to submit to anybody. We want everybody to submit to us. That is our natural heart inclination. And so when Peter leads out with submit, we automatically know he's going to be challenging our focus. He tells them to submit to every human authority because of the Lord whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. This is the part that really irks Americans. You mean if I don't like the government, I still have to submit to the government? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Don't know any other way to read that. Wish it was different. Wish I could tell you something different. But Peter says that in light of who Christ is, note that's the motivation there, In light of who Christ is, submit to every every human authority because of the Lord. Not because they are doing the right thing, not because they are godly, not because they are righteous, not because they are answering questions the right way, but submit to them because of Christ. Now, what context is Peter writing in? He's writing in a context when the emperor is killing Christians. He's writing in a context when they are being thrown in prison. And he says, in that context, submit yourself to the emperor. Huh? He's getting at their focus, right? He's he's saying, look, are you focused on the suffering or are you focused on Christ? Are, Are you focused on the trials or are you focused on Christ? Because if we're focused on Christ, then for lack of a better way of putting it, the emperor just kind of fades into the background, We don't really care who's president right now because Jesus is still on his throne. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And nothing that any country or any party or any ruling authority on earth does is going to knock Jesus off of his throne. We act like God is as surprised as we are when the election results come in. That's not how God works. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. How much is excluded from the word all? None. It's all his. So Peter can tell them, hey, you're not just looking for your preferences to be met. 
You're not just looking for you to be comfortable in the nation that God has sent you into as a sojourner, as an exile. What you're looking for is to submit because of Jesus. That authority is under his authority. That authority is not outside of his control. Do you not think he could change it in a moment if he wanted to? But he has a work that is bigger than your comfort, bigger than your preference, bigger even than we can fathom. Jesus says we ought to submit. Peter says we ought to submit. I'm starting to think that this might be something that he takes seriously. But he says also, instead of worrying so much about your rights, start worrying about your responsibilities. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Not so you silence the ignorance of foolish people by really laying the smack down on them in that online comment section, by owning them in the arguments, no. Silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. How much would change in the dialogue in our culture today if every Christ follower decided that was how they were going to handle arguments from now on? Instead of fussing and fighting, bickering back and forth, I'm just going to do good. Y'all carry on with the drama. I'm going to go get to work. I think that might change a few things. Responsibilities rather than who's right. Finally, he says, look, it's, it's, it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Peter gets to the point where he's like, what I'm saying is hard. And he did. He said some hard things. He said he talked to slaves, Right? We would look and say, that's terrible. I can't believe that. Why didn't he tell them to rise up and revolt, overthrow their masters? No, slavery is wrong, but he says it is. It is. How do you live as a Christ follower in what is? So he's talking about some tough stuff. And in the midst of that, he says, wait a second. Lest you think that I am merely calling you to something that is new on the face of the earth, lest you think that I am merely calling you to something that is going to benefit my standing as the writer of this epistle, Peter says, no, I'm calling you to this because of Jesus and because of his example. He wants them to focus on Jesus. Everybody do me a favor real quick. Take your phone out of your pocket or your purse or wherever it is. Go ahead. This is, this is that moment when I'm going to give you permission to look at your phone in church. Do not open it, do not check notifications, do not pull out Candy Crush, do not do any of those things, because I know you will be gone, right? These little demon boxes we carry around with us, right? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at that phone, all right? If you don't have a phone, go ahead and use your Bible. That'll work just as well in this instance. Just look at it. Look at it. Can you see the cross on the wall behind me? When you're looking at your phone, when you're looking at something else in your lap, can you? No. But now do me a favor. Stop looking at that thing in your hand and look up at the cross. Can you see it now? Now do me something else. Go ahead and lift that phone up until it blocks. Can you see the cross? 
The reason Peter tells us, you can put them down now, the reason that Peter tells us to protect our focus is because sometimes as Christ followers, we forget that we're supposed to be looking at Jesus. And we get distracted and we're looking at every other thing around us and we're, we're looking down, we're looking around, but we're not looking at Jesus. And that's one way to lose focus. The other way to lose focus is to keep looking at Jesus, but to bring something else up as the lens through which we see him. Both of those for Peter are not going to work. He says, what you want to do is look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He did not commit sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He bore our sins. He died for our sins that we might live to righteousness. You've been healed by his wounds. You were sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Look at Jesus. This morning, if you are heading in a direction that is not towards Christ, that doesn't look like Jesus, you are far from following in his steps, you are following the path of the crowd to destruction. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to righteousness, and few are those who find it because it's the path that follows Jesus' feet. You're meant to be walking in his steps. Would you find yourself chasing the crowd, chasing everything that they are chasing? You need to shift your focus. You need to look at Jesus. You need to, instead of bemoaning your trials like all of the unbelievers do, you need to say, Jesus suffered. And he shows me how to suffer well. Instead of following the crowd into pleasure, you say, Jesus fixed his eyes on the prize. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so I'm going to fix my eyes on the prize. Some of us, though, we're walking that path, but we're constantly tempted. We're constantly losing focus. We, we're walking with Jesus, but we keep getting distracted by our preferences or things that we think matter more than what somebody else thinks matters more. And we get all caught up in little theological dramas and doctrinal dilemmas. And we, we get all wrapped up in, did you do your quiet time at the beginning of the day or the end of the day? And we get wrapped up in, did you listen to this kind of music or that kind of music? Right? Are you drinking or you're not drinking? What are you doing? And we pointed at Jesus, but we start to look at the people around us and judge them. We're pointed at Jesus, but we get caught up in a morbid introspection, just looking at our own lives. And Peter says to both, whether you're off the path or on the path, get your eyes back on Jesus. Focus on him. He is the reason we can submit. He is the reason we can take up our responsibilities, our cross. He is the reason that we can deny ourselves. And that church is the call. We protect our souls by abstaining from sin. We protect our witness by conducting ourselves with honor. We protect our focus by keeping it fixed on Jesus and not letting anything get between. That's our call. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider the word and as we think about the call that you have for us to guard ourselves, we're thankful, God, that we do so on the basis, not of our own strength, not on of our own power, but because of Jesus' blood shed, his resurrection gives us hope, your spirit gives us life. May we lean in on those things. May we focus there.
We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.